you're going to try and do something for yourself, which is best. Um, I want to be just like the bus drivers want to be on the winning team. I, as a user, I want to be a winner. Yeah, I want to be not a loser. I want to be somebody who's made a brilliant decision that's not only in my interest, but is good for society. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest this week has an irritating tendency not to shout about his achievements. This is unhelpful, as it's important that the rest of us hear them and learn from them. A few weeks ago, on the Freewheeling blog, I did a study of places in the UK in which bus use had properly grown in the last 10 years. It was just four places. Bristol, Bath, Brighton and Reading. James Freeman, my guest today, was MD of Reading Transport at the start of this period and MD of the bus company for Bath and Bristol at the end. The future of the planet literally depends on getting more people onto carbon efficient transport and James Freeman is one of the only people who seem to know how to do it. James, Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. Well, thank you very much indeed. Very pleased to be here. Now, you joined the bus industry in the 1970s when climate change was barely known about and when car absolutely was king. Why buses? Well, I'm, if I could answer that question, I'd know the answer to life. Absolutely. But um, I've, to be quite honest, I've always been interested in buses since I was a very tiny boy. Why did I look at buses and think they were interesting? But I did. So all through my uh, childhood and teenage years, uh, I was pretty clear that what I was going to do was work on the buses. And I remember going to the to the school careers teacher and he said, what are you going to do, young Freeman? And I said, well, I'm going to work on the buses. And he looked at me in disbelief. I couldn't work out what was to do. But but. He did me the great favour of, he looked in the phone book and he found two, two, two names, London Transport and National Bus Company. He rang them both and National Bus said, send him along. So at the age of 16, I trotted along to New Street Square, which is the headquarters of National Bus Company, most impressive building in the middle of a square. And uh, I uh, had a chat with a guy called Malcolm Blanksby, who was the group uh, training officer at the time. Uh, training development manager, I think he was. Um, and uh, it, I was 16 then, and here I am for, well, I'm 64 and three quarters now. Uh, and I've pretty well been working on the buses ever since. And interestingly, I'm still in touch with him, although he's now at considerable age. So um, I was always convinced that this was what was going to be what I was going to do. And of course, the thing about buses, which is fascinating, isn't the tin boxes on wheels, it's the people. And it's everything about the people that makes uh, the bus business fascinating. How do you get people to want to travel? How do you get people to want to work in the industry? And, and how do you want them not just to work in it, but to enjoy working in it and, and to reflect that enjoyment in the enthusiasm with which they go about their, their work? And so um, I've been doing that uh, all the way through one way or another. And uh, I started as a, a, my first experience and National Bus said, Malcolm Blackstreet said, go and be a bus conductor, age 18. Don't go to uni, go and be a bus conductor, and then go to uni after. It was the best advice I could possibly have had. It uh, showed me so much about uh, life. Number one, the fact that people were constantly thieving. I was the bus conductor that collected all the money. Uh, um, 
I used to give everyone a ticket on my bus. So I used to pay in more than anybody else in the depot. It took me a time to wonder why that was. And then I did. But, uh, um, uh, and, uh, you know, one of the most obvious and, and, and amazing things to me was uh, as a, a new young employee, never met the managers, senior ones, didn't know what they were doing, didn't understand why we were doing what we were doing. When they put the fares up, they never told us anything about why it was. We had a absolutely thumping rate increase more or less two months after I started and of course it was a time of galloping inflation and I mean unbelievable now but you know they put the fares up by 25 percent but nobody sort of said why and, and we'd, we'd be working the bus through and people saying well why are you done that then and, and you say well I don't know it's the old fools that run the business and that that was a message for me about communication which has stuck with me right the way through so um yeah if you cut me in half little buses would come out I suppose I don't know and when you joined as a bus conductor, were you intending to be you know, a bus conductor or were you, was this a research project? Were you thinking to yourself, actually, I'm learning all the lessons. So when I, when I run the show, I'll do it, I'll do it properly. I'll know what well, to be done. I, it, was, it was very much part of a, of a process. Yeah. So, so I, did, I did six months conducting and six months as a grade 1B clerk in the Bristol Omnibus Company, just across the way from where I work now, amazingly. Uh, so 40-something years later, there I am still trundling around Lawrence Hill in Bristol. But, uh, um, and both of those were an extraordinary insight. Yeah, but they were absolutely about. Um, and I remember thinking to myself, yeah, one day, I wonder whether I'll, you know, whether I'll do it that way. Uh, um, uh, and, of course, the, the aim was to get uh, onto the National Bus Company's Senior Management Training Scheme, uh, which, which I did. Um, and uh, 1978, after three years as a history graduate at uh, University of Southampton, um, as, as uh, Malcolm's advice was, get a degree, any degree will do, it doesn't matter what it is, just get a degree. Um, and uh, I landed on the South Wales Transport Company in Swansea, fantastic place to go training, uh, absolutely terrific. Uh, uh, um, a small company, very, uh, relatively speaking, uh, um, a complex area, lots of issues, wonderful people, um, and uh, quite a poor history at the time, mid-1970s, but a very good team of people in there uh, running it. And, and uh, I, I was uh, sort of brought up by them, if you like, and learnt my, learnt my basics with them. But I've always wanted, I remember going to the National Bus Company's uh, six monthly interviews, which were ghastly do's in London. I to my knees just to knock together and all these terribly important people who were just people I realized in later life. But, you know, and they used to ask these terrible questions. But they, one of their questions, their stock questions, what do you want to do later? I said, I want to be sat where you are. I did my graduate placement, the equivalent to your six months as a bus conductor um, at Euston Railway Station. We both clearly had this foundational experience around theft, which I wonder, I wonder, hopefully that's not still true of the next generation coming through, because I trained in booking office procedures by a duty manager who I later discovered had funneled about £15,000 out of that booking office, which means that the training that I, I received had a, had a hole designed into it. And I've never found out what that hole was. All, all I know is that there's a gap somewhere, but I don't know what it is. The, the bus conductor who trained me, his name was Doug. Um, he he, uh, he got sacked quite soon after I joined because he was reselling tickets. And uh, um, I was taught to go around the car park and work out who were the fiddlers um, on the basis of what sort of vehicle they were driving, which was quite a good um, sort of base test. <laughs> um, and, but, uh, I mean, it's interesting that in those days, the fact that, 
uh, you know, fair collection was in the hands of, of roving conductors meant that the opportunities for quite industrial scale theft were much greater, actually, than is the case nowadays, where you've got to be a bit more sophisticated. That was one difference back in the 1970s. I mean, the, you know, that was before the famous Mrs. Thatcher quote that she may or may not have said, you know, a man in, on a bus in his 30s is a failure. So I'm an unambiguous failure by Thatcherite terms. Uh, but the, yeah, the bus industry was different then. What are the big changes you've seen in the, in the time that you've been working in and primarily running bus companies? Well, some things haven't changed, but I suppose um, uh, our share of the market has, share, has changed in lots of places. So... Um, over, um, it's a bit scary really, the, the period from the 1978 I joined South West Transport uh, to now, um, our market share has declined dramatically. The number of cars on the road has grown immensely. Traffic congestion, which we thought was a problem in 1978, is a problem squared now. Um, Covid's altered the situation, but in principle, it's still it's still there and waiting to happen. Um, so those things have, have this sort of scale of things has, has changed in that sense. Um, and uh, But the things that haven't changed are we still need to make money out of operating business. We still need to provide a good business. We still need to engage our staff. We still need to have enough staff. Uh, we still need to work with the, the local authorities. Um, and actually, we're arriving at a point now where the relationship is changing. Um, and we went through this convulsion in 1986 when... We went from a very regulated world, um, which was extraordinarily regulated. I remember going to a traffic commissioner's court in Cardiff and watching Graham Varley, our then traffic manager at South West Transport, being literally eaten alive by the traffic commissioner, absolutely, about some fares change. And it was just dreadful to watch. I thought, oh, my God, I don't want to be in anything like that. Um, and then we went 1986, and it kind of went the other way, and everything went uh, hugely deregulated and the idea of commercial bus services and 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 that did make a lot of wonderful things happen in terms of um allowing operators the scope to get out there and and, and uh, do things a bit more innovatively um but uh, we're obviously moving into a different phase now where, where the public purse is going to be needed to 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 keep the thing on the road and that's going to alter the way we we play as operators so we're going to be influencing rather than deciding and working with the the um, authorities to to get their optimum networks and all the rest of it. So um, so in many ways, it's not that different. I must just explain to our listeners that um, a, a team of scaffolders set up shop immediately outside James's window the second we started this recording, which is why you can hear a, a slight noise in the background. So we're getting to the crux of, of why I particularly wanted to speak to you. Um, and you're going to be very humble at this point, um, and I urge you not to be, because there is something remarkable about the fact that of the four places that have seen uh, meaningful growth in bus numbers in the last 10 years, um, you have run three of them. And the fact that these are all places in which public sector funding of bus services has declined in that time. So that there is something that you are doing differently or have done differently in those locations to the mainstream of what has been done. And I'd love to start to get into what some of those things might be. Very interesting. I mean, I'm a bit astonished to hear you say that, um, to be honest, because, I mean, I haven't done anything at all that's peculiar or special or strange. Um, but we have, uh, in every case, and I've, I mean, I've been doing this really ever since I first took over a business which was 
uh, Shamrock and Rambler coaches, Shamrock and Rambler uh, of Bournemouth in 1983, which was a, a, a sort of bucket case um, uh, subsidiary, a little tiny subsidiary of National Bus. They didn't know what to do with, and they and they looked around, and I said, "Well, I could I could run that," and they said, "Oh, forgotten about you." Um, but the same things that we had to do there, we I've done wherever I've gone, which is. There, there are some very, very simple, basic things you can do with a business that, that start to make it behave differently. And it starts, for me, it starts with the people who work in it. Because the thing that will most impact on the way people re respond to our service offer is what happens to them when they actually travel. So um, you know, bus staff generally tend to think of themselves pretty poorly. Yeah, the general perception, it's better now, but, you know, bus drivers really felt themselves to be victims, um, victims of uh, fate. Uh, you know, they didn't become an astronaut. They had to be settled for being a bus driver. Uh, victims of management, all idiots. Um, victims of customers, all horrible. Um, victims of everything else you can possibly imagine, the traffic, all the things that make their lives miserable. Um, and, and I think you have to take people out, out of all that sense of think, think, thinking and re-establish the or establish a sense of pride and uh, self-worth amongst the workforce because that will create a different quality uh, of uh, product in every respect. So that's the number one thing for me in every, every business I've ever been involved with is to try and pick people up and give them, give them a sense of self-significance so that they are looking at equally across into the eyes of their customer, not up into their eyes, but straight across at them, not down equally, but straight across at them. And, and actually, that's really easy to do if you're absolutely consistent in, the, in, in your approach. So what we're looking to do all the time is to winnow out the people who have no hope of ever getting to the, you know, if you walk into the canteen, as I did in Reading, and there was a bloke, um, giving the woman behind the counter, what for? I don't know what, you know, verbally, of course. Um, and I'm thinking to myself, my godfathers, if you're doing that to, you know, a colleague, what must you be like with the customers? And uh, sure enough, when we looked up in the, in the, uh, in the uh, uh, sort of accounts of, of what, they, what, what the, that particular individual was doing, it was pretty seedy. They went long before they went out of the business. Start recruiting people who, who like people. Actually, that's a really significant thing. Um, I remember back to my conducting days, about 10 weeks in, I was put with a guy called Jack May who hated people. What was he doing in the bus industry? And yet he'd been there for 25 years. He did everything he could to, to, to abuse people and to avoid characterizing them and all the rest of it. Such people hopeless. In our business, you get somebody behind the wheel who likes being there and enjoys the, 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 uh, the sort of banter with the passengers and all the rest of it. They'll do a super job for you and for themselves as well. So, so there's a whole issue around that. And in every place I've been, it's taken years to change people's perception of who they are. But in every case, it's gradually happened. In Reading, I was there for seven years. And for the first three, I thought, this isn't, this isn't working. But in the end, it did start to work. And by the end of it, we, we, and Reading's gone on uh, and you know, it's still doing it. Uh, and people's, the, the way they operate, that's really, really significant. Um, uh, is different, and it and it means it's more it's possible for for customers 
to trust the business more. Yeah, there's no risk when you get on the bus that someone's going to tell you what to do. And I don't mean, uh, you know, that's yeah. You know, who hasn't been made to look stupid by a bus driver sometime in their life? And yet, every time you do that, you risk losing that customer forever. Uh, um, and you want to reduce the, the the opportunity for that sort of thing to happen, and indeed the opposite to happen. So, number one thing, therefore, to answer your question, is people, absolutely key, and building that team. And that point about recruiting people who enjoy people is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I spent an extraordinary nine months working for the open access rail operator Rexham and Shropshire. And I, I can claim no credit for what I'm about to tell you because it has happened. The, the business was well and truly up and running and established when I joined. Um, but they had recruited, it was a startup, so they had a huge benefit of being able to recruit a completely fresh team. But they had a policy, they had no interest in whether you had any experience of working with railways um, or on trains. They just wanted people who loved people. And Rexman Shropshire is the only train company ever to achieve 99% customer satisfaction in the National Passenger Survey. I really do think that, that you can teach people to, to run a train or, or to do whatever it is. But what you can't teach them to do is to like people. If it's in them, it's in them. And if it isn't, any amount of training schools and charm schools and things won't really make it happen. If people are not interested in them, they will never really pick it up. So, so I know it's a really good illustration of exactly the point. But one question I've got is obviously you you did this, but yeah, I, I remember talking to a senior person in a bus company who shall be nameless for the purpose of this conversation. But he said it would be great if we could do more or less what you described, but we need so many drivers and we can only afford to pay them so much that we have to make do with what we've got and what we can get. And we don't get the kind of applicants I'd like, but that's all we get through the door and we need the numbers. How did you get around that? So that um, and all these places have had staff shortages, and in Bristol we had immense staff shortages. And um, and and I I first hit staff shortages uh, when I was working for Stagecoach. Um, and at the time, you know, Stagecoach was a, a very kind of um, cost-driven organisation in many ways. But um, what we realised, and I was in Leamington Spa, and we were desperately short of drivers. We oh, I don't know, I can't remember, but we were about twenty-five percent short. So, and it completely ruined everything we did because it dominated everything. Now, there were two approaches to that. One was to sort of follow the mantra you've just described. And the other was to say, just look at the cost of all this. If we could actually reduce the turnover and uh, get better people, we could justify paying them more money. And actually, that's what we do. So we increase the wages dramatically. And I've done that in several places. And we, and we, we put, uh, we had a, uh, a wage increase in Bristol in 2015 of uh, about 16% in one go without any negotiation, just just put it in. Uh, trade union were totally astonished. Um, didn't know what to say. Um, didn't even remember to say thank you at the time. But uh, um, but 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 uh, uh, actually, and people look at me and say, "Well, you're stupid." Of course, they just if you, anyone can spend money. That's easy. Um, which I accept is a criticism, but. Actually, if you're going to break the mold, you've got to do something significant that's going to break it. So you need to stop the leeching away of people. And people do leave for economic reasons. They leave because they don't like the job, don't like the way they're treated, all those sort of things. But they also leave because, you know, they've got to make uh, body and soul come together. So, so actually getting the wage level right is very, very important. And being prepared to pay for people 
um, so that you can keep them. And I've worked in places where staff have been very short. Oxford is another place I worked. Very difficult to get and keep staff in, in a place where Cowley was offering immense wages for, for putting bits on minis um, just across the road. And you just had to pay more money. Otherwise, you could not, uh, um, you know, if you didn't produce an economically acceptable price for your bus driver job, then you were always going to be at the bottom end. And of course, when, and this is a change, when I was first in the industry, we had the National Council for the Omnibus Industry, which meant you got paid the same if you were driving a bus in Totnes, uh, where there was, you know, where you were there for a king uh, um, paid for Western National, um, as you were working in a place like Winchester, which had 1.5% unemployment and where you couldn't get anyone to work on the buses at all because all went and worked at Fords at Swaving. Um, so uh, breaking away from those sort of national agreements and things, very important. So you've got, you've got to pay the, the economic rent and you've got to be prepared to, to take the cost of that. But having done that, you can then set your stall out and say, right, number one, anyone who leaves never comes back. Key thing. I did that first in Banbury when we used to have, we used to have Cheenies and Midland Red and people used to shunt between the two. If it was Tuttons on the right, they said, oh, we're going to Cheenies next week because they're more, better payers than you lot. And then the next week, we put threatens on our rate and they'd all come back again. And the consequence was just, you know, you're just using drivers as fodder, you know, steering wheel uh, um, uh, uh, controllers, as it were. You mustn't do that. You have to make people um, actually, they've got to be people and they've got to want to do what you want them to do and they want to do it properly. And when you go into a business like first in, in Bristol, it, there's a tremendous legacy problem and, and people's attitudes and things go back to the 1940s and, you know, they've had years and years and years and years of experiences which are suboptimal, let's just describe them that way, uh, of management and the job and all the rest of it. You have to reset all the dials and say, no, this is what we expect, this, this and this and this. And But for this, the other side of the coin is the job will be better, you'll have better colleagues, you know, um, and everything starts to slide upwards. And, uh, and it works. And I, and I can tell you it works because I've done it repeatedly. Everywhere I've gone, you had to effectively attack that issue. Because if you get the workforce side of things right, the rest of your business can start to happen. You can start to do your marketing. You can start to do your uh, relationships with local authorities so that you're on the winning side. Because once you are uh, uh, um, beginning to um, pull people with you, everybody likes success, don't they? Do you know somebody who doesn't want to be part of a successful team? Well, I don't. Um, people like to be winners. So if you just lay things out for them so that they can be winners and they start realizing, I'm talking about bus drivers and other members of staff, they realize that they, they can be part of a winning team. Oof, does that change things? So one, once you're doing that and you can you get it to a certain point, it will, it will keep on going as long as you keep an eye on it and you have the right managers in running. And that's, so that's one side of it. And then you have to think about what does your product look like. Before we come on to that, two things you said there that struck me that I want to come back to. Um, one is um, you mentioned a 16% pay rise in Bristol. Um, fairly obviously, taking in aggregate the results of, 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 of that business since then, that has paid for itself. Did it pay for itself you know, in terms of staff turnover and you know, the pure cost side? Or was it the fact that you were then able to generate more revenue that caused that to pay for itself? I think it's um there's two things about it. I mean, I think that it is a cost. It's got to be worked out on the cost side because if it doesn't work on the cost side, 
it's too risky to hope it's going to have the right effect commercially. I mean, I think it does have the effect commercially, but, but the, the thing is that the costs that we waste in turnover, staff turnover in the bus industry, they're huge. And the more we spend on training people, because we have to, you know, it's getting more and more complicated and longer term, and you have to do all the various things that you do. Stopping people from leaving and continuing to improve their product knowledge, energy, enthusiasm, and all the rest of it is an enormously effective investment. Because, you know, if you're not having to spend, I don't know, six, eight, ten thousand quid on a new person, you can use that six, eight, ten thousand quid on your business. And if you're doing that in big numbers, I mean, we, we were you know, turning over hundreds of people a year. So they were coming in, we were training them, and they're going away again. And a lot of them wasted. They weren't even going to drive somebody else's coach. They were just leaving their PCV in their back pocket. Um, complete waste of energy. We, if we're going to train people properly, we need that training to come home to roost, if you like. And so I think it's, it's about the cost side. And... Uh, and, you know, we waste so much money on, on training in order to tick boxes and, and all the rest of it. What we need to make sure, you know, who, whoever thought that um, sending people on the same CPC course five times in order to get the CPC qualification, which until this year was perfectly legitimate approach and used by many operators as a way of getting people through. What message does that give to the to the to the poor old fellow who's doing his fifth time round of whatever it was that course was, what does he think of that waste? It's a complete waste of time, of course. And he thinks the people who sent him on that course are complete nutcases. And he wouldn't be far wrong, would he? And talking of time, the other thing that struck me was you, is about patience, because you said it would take three years, this approach to work. So if, if this is the foundation, this is the bedrock, you've got to have a certain amount of patience in order to make this succeed. Is that fair? and faith that it's going to so it took much longer in bristol that's been a much bigger nut to crack a bigger operation a much bigger legacy really of um previous experience i mean everything about bristol was um was tricky in terms of its history uh its whole reputation you know people switched first to worst in their head and 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 so they did in in our as employees i, I remember you know, 2014, there are two things about it that struck me. One was that as I walked across the yard, drivers would put their heads down and walk past. Um, they don't do that now. We're all waving at each other and chatting and all the rest of it. And not just to me, but just generally. Um, and the other was that if people said, well, who do you work for? They wouldn't say, oh, I work for First West of England. They, they would try and change the subject. Um, because they knew that if they said they worked for first, the first thing they get is, well, I stood for 37 minutes at this, you know, uh, and all that kind of case. But, well, you know, um, actually, that doesn't make you feel good about being an employee. And so, uh, you, you know, it all interacts. So getting the, the, the whole product right as well is, is key. And getting people who make decisions in the city to think it's all right as well. These are all elements that play together, but they come back to, you know, each individual person. So we're only as good as the weakest link in our chain. Okay, so we've got, we've had faith, and we've had patience, and we've now got the team in place. Um, what's next? So the other thing is to look at what we're doing and um, and try and focus on how we can make our bus service 
do the things that its users want it to do. So we want it to be regular and reliable. Yeah. So we want it to do what it says on the can. That's very difficult to do, actually. Um, congestion and traffic and all the rest of it. Um, I found that very early on in Bristol, we were pouring buses into the schedule just to get the buses to operate more or less as we said they were going to because traffic speeds had slowed down and uh, our schedules were unrealistic, quite frankly. Um, so um, actually getting the situation to one where reliability starts to build is really important. And um, incidentally, uh, uh, it, there's a bit of a, a drawback across to the drivers because, of course, if they don't feel good, they don't bother to run all the mileage um, and they'll cut mileage at the, at the first rate. So getting reliability um, into place is absolutely key. And getting people to say to themselves, actually, running this bus matters more than anything else. It has to go every day, same time, same place. You know, these sorts of things. You might say, well, that's obvious, isn't it? Well, it wasn't obvious in our business. And we used to cut tons of mileage. But um, we used to, at the end of the day, people used to stand in the Gloucester Road in North Bristol and bus after bus after bus after bus would come by saying not in service. Why? Because um, we, we had an agreement with the drivers dating back to the year blob, whereby if they were near the end of their shift and they thought they weren't going to finish in time, they could come back to the depot empty. And they did. Um, so, and they nearly always took the service route so that they went past all the bus stops doing that to the passengers as they went. So, um, you know, so reliability, number two, key, absolutely key, and quite difficult as well, um, and takes a number of tries around it. And then um, uh, the whole business of trying to represent the product. And um, I, I, I've always been a believer that uh, buses are local. I don't like national brands. don't think they add anything at all to the bus traveling experience. What difference does it make whether you're Stagecoach or Arriva or whatever? What matters is does, does the bus service along your road relate to you? Is it is it about you? I always remember when I worked for Travel West Midlands and we put bendy buses on the Castle Vale route, 97, no, not 97, 67. And, um, uh, and they were branded, heavily branded for Castle Vale. And Castle Vale was a dreadful place. It's all been blown up now. It's all, it's all flat. It's disappeared. But um, these these buses... They loved them. The local people loved them. They were their buses. And everything in Castlevale got ruined within seconds. But the wonderful Vendy buses on the 67 gleamed their way through month after month after month because people in Castlevale said, don't you mess around with them. They're our buses. And actually, that uh, local identity, if you like, might seem very stupid and, and very flippant and to many people in the, in, in the higher echelons of the industry, irrelevant. But actually the buy-in that you get from a local identity and very local identity is um, without doubt a very valuable thing and and allows you to build all kinds of things around it. So um, uh, the idea of enormous rotors, for example, is another thing I don't like, um, where you work around a five-year rotor and you never do the same shift um, uh, uh, again until you've probably left. Uh, um, uh, replaced by rotors that are much more bespoke to particular areas of uh, of activity, whether it's routes or places or whatever, so that the individual member of staff begins to build a relationship with the product and with the people who use the product. And actually, we've seen that deliver benefit. Wherever it goes in, it changes the relationship 
fundamentally and people start to build a, a relationship and even in big cities it's astonishing to me how um uh, a uh, having a bespoke group of, of drivers who always do the same things builds a trust with the product uh, uh users which is irreplaceably useful so um we had, we had an example of bristol the number five route a number five route which uh, uh, still runs it runs to uh, um uh it runs through st paul's which some people have heard of quite a, a um, difficult area I, I used to get regular phone calls from people using the number five and i used to spend my life in down end at coffee bars and trying to talk to people and what a load of rubbish this route is it's absolutely useless and dreadful um it was unreliable the drivers were uninterested even disinterested really in, in the whole thing and we decided that the only thing to do with it was to uh take the number five route give it its own identity it's called the mint five and uh uh, say to, the, to to a different deaf actually um we want a team of 20 people who are going to you're going to be the number five team and we're going to make the number five super reliable make sure that it's perfectly possible to operate every journey you know we give enough time and all that kind of thing we're going to take a fleet of quite battered old buses and we're going to doll them up and paint them green because that's what the mint, mint green and um and we're going to halve the frequency to make it happen of the frequency and we went out to public consultation and we said to people we're going to make this bus less frequent but we're going to make sure it runs every single one will run it was astonishing in it went team of 20 with no time they built a relationship with their customers which is going this is five years ago we've just changed the buses now in the last couple of months actually um and the relationship has changed unbelievably and very quickly i never got another phone call we never got any more noise of it other than the noise from the kids at the local school that the drivers have got together with to do something for or um you know we we found ourselves having route five drivers parties i've never been in this more strange place than in the bristol fashion which is in a, a restaurant that overlooks the haymarket in bristol with with a group of number five drivers and number five bus appears and they all stand up <laughs> and they feel it's theirs and and all of a sudden, we've, ch we've changed the whole um, uh, dynamic of that. Now, if you can take that and use it, repeat it across the business in different ways, um, it starts to um, uh, generate goodwill. It generates return business, people coming back and going on doing it and going on doing it and going on doing it. And so, um, uh, and, and, and therefore, you end up with, in my view, a whole series of brands especially in a situation where in Reading and in Bristol, we've had pretty well all the buses are run by us. So we don't have to differentiate from other places. What we need to do is differentiate one from another. Uh, and I think that, that, you know, branding per route using vivid colors has the great advantage that it untangles the bus network for people. It's not, I mean, you know, how many people do I know who say, well, I go to London, but I never go on a bus because they're all red and I don't know where they go. Um, and I use buses all the time in London because I know where they go. Um, but if you have different colored routes, I, I, you know, I was a senior policeman came to me the other day and he said, do you know what, James? He said, you run a bus from Cribs Causeway to the city center of Bristol. I said, well, it's true, actually. But how did you work that out? And he said, well, I saw a yellow bus in the center of Bristol and I saw one at Cribs Causeway. And it occurred to me that you must run between the two. And I didn't know you did that, which is pretty basic. But um, 
but but actually, if you see what I mean, that that what that does is it says if you're a marginal user, might be going to use user, that's a way of convincing you that it's all right to do. It's like a tram line. People say to me, "Your well, tram lines are good because you you know it can't go off road because it's it's going to follow the line." That's a bit silly, but. Um, actually, we're looking for things to convince people all the time and to and to reassure them and to make them feel that it's about them and all those sort of things. So people say to me, oh, I come to Bristol and it's all different colors and, you know, isn't that confusing for people? Well, it is if you don't look. But if you're interested in where you're going, what you're doing, then those colors are fantastic. And it's very interesting when people who are partially sighted say, well, we really like the different colors because we can tell the tones are different, even though we can't see the colors. And you think, gracious me. So... That's quite an important part of things. Um, and smartening up the fleet doesn't half make a difference. It's interesting, um, uh, our advertising people, Global. I'm always getting stuff from Global who say, people want to advertise in your buses, James, because they look nice. And actually, the several hundred thousand quid we make off that is quite handy. Although it's, you know, people say it makes our buses look untidy. I quite like it, but some buses actually, they make them look, feel relevant. They've got stuff on the side that's about this week, this month, or whatever it might be. I, I think they, um, that's not a bad problem. But uh, um, it's a bit trivial. It's a bit on the edge of it. But it also helps the politicians and the decision makers and people around. Because if what they see is a quality operation and one that they can start to themselves understand, bearing in mind that most decision makers never go on a bus at all, in the provinces, um, it's quite rare. Although in some places, in Reading, we had a great benefit that quite a lot of our our, our senior, um, our owners and people actually rode on buses. That was what they did. Um, so that was helpful. And we do have users in Bristol who, who are senior people and make decisions. So that's quite handy. But, you know, if you get the quality right and things start to look a bit snazzy and um, they look like they're relevant to the place and you have to run the right ones in the right places and all the rest of it. Then people get the idea that you're on top of it and that you mean business and new users. And they're the ones we were looking for all the time. You were saying, what about growth? Getting people to come and travel is really, really important. Uh, and that's about reassuring them that they won't make themselves feel stupid um, and, and that they will, you know, who, who wants to do something? which is suboptimal. You're going to try and do something for yourself, which is best, aren't you? I want to be, just like the bus drivers want to be on the winning team, I, as a user, I want to be a winner, yeah? I want to be not a loser, not a Mrs. Thatcher type loser. I want to be somebody who's made a brilliant decision that's not only in my interest, but is good for society, you know? And and actually, by making a decision to ride on, on, on James's bus, I'm actually, um, you know, I'm winning for myself. And actually, that's key. Leads me into one other thing, which is pricing and fares. And I'm a great proponent of making ticketing easy one way or another. When we were using cash, I liked flat fares. We had a flat fare in, in Reading, which meant that people understood the proposition. They knew what it, that you've got a bus to put so much money uh, into the box in that case. Uh, in Bristol, we've done the same. We've got a flat fare. The mayor of Bristol thinks the Bristol flat fare is a brilliant thing. Now, it's a curious arrangement because it's a very big city. So if you live a long way from town centre, you get a very good value journey. If, you live, if you're rich and you live in the middle, you can afford to pay the higher price. So actually, the uh, um, uh, uh, single price for everybody works very well, but completely overtaken by smartphone ticketing, which 
we went into in 2016 in the big style uh, when it was just starting in first and tickets they called. Um, very scared I was. We, we put all the cash prices up and kept the M ticket prices at the old prices. And I remember the first day we launched, I was in Broadmead with the, with the gang talking to passengers, thinking we're going to be mauled to death here because people hate fares increases, as you know. And everybody said, well, what's not to like about that? And I realized that we were onto something. And we got tremendous and rapid switch to M ticketing. And once we got people onto M tickets where they're using their smartphones to pay, you can start to mess around with the pricing because people don't really worry about it so much. Uh, what people really want is convenience and, and accessibility. They want to be able to jump on the bus and go. And they don't look at the price once they don't need to in the way astonishing, which is quite helpful if you need to wiggle around with the prices occasionally. So I think um, M tickets have made a huge difference to, uh, and then now um, uh, contactless and uh, and all the various things are have made it much easier for people to, to, to opt to travel, and that's that's very important. The TfL service uh, in London, the pricing is always praised um, for its simplicity. The TfL pricing structure is absolutely fiendishly complicated. It's not that people like the prices, it's the fact they don't think about the prices, because Oyster exactly. and Contactless means you never have to think about the prices. And you know, there's a, a lot of desire to simplify the, the national rail pricing. And the problem isn't the national rail pricing. The problem is that you're constantly forced to think about it. People simply rather not have to deal with the complexity. Um, this 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 approach you know, it, it, it sounds blissfully simple um you have a, a, a single rotor per route um, you paint the bus on that route a, a, a nice color um you make sure the bus is smart um, and more people will use it um I, I, you won't know the precise answer to this question but i'm asking you to make a guess what as, as a guess what proportion of buses in the uk would you think currently operate to that model very roughly very roughly, what would your guess be? Well, not very many. There are there are places where it's very vividly done, and they stand out a mile. Um, and there are some places where it's it, it's it's done slightly more marginally, but it works all right. And there are lots of other places where it absolutely isn't done. And and, and indeed, there are places where it's considered to be a bad thing. I remember um, hearing uh, uh, one of the municipals um, saying, well, we're getting rid of route, route branding because it's all too difficult. It doesn't make a difference. No, nobody, nobody minds. Um, but the people who are out there winning, I think, are all using some form of vivid route-based marketing, which takes the product back to its, its roots and makes sure that the people who are delivering it are actually completely sort of besotted with it really that's the thing and the, you know the very best examples the 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 the, the, the trans dev 36 as well which is the sort of benchmark um for me um you know it's self-evident there and and the sorts of things we do are a pale imitation of that i go, i suppose really and i never had a, a, an imaginative new idea of my own at all ever in my career but i've nicked a few and i don't want to spend too long on this but you know, we spend vast amounts of time and energy in this industry on questions of public versus private, private versus corporate, corporate versus independent, municipal versus. Are these the relevant questions or not? No, not at all. Um, and I mean, I, I've been doing the same old thing regardless of who I work for. So I've worked in the state sector, national bus companies. We still had to pay the commencing capital debt, which is, uh, you know, we had to make lots of money in order to do that. Uh, I've worked in the municipal sector. 
I've worked for PLCs. Um, actually, uh, um, you know, sometimes these ownership issues can be a real kind of uh, take the eye off the ball it, uh, situation. So it's difficult for some of the some of these big PLCs actually to pay attention closely to the market because they've got so much noise happening around them uh, that it's that it's problematic for them to actually concentrate on 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 those uh, basic delivery things. But the principle of the matter is still the same. You, you know, the same old basics, the staff, the reliability, the, the, the passengers kind of identification of what you're doing, what the people in the area think about it. They're the same whether you're state owned, owned by the man in the moon, frankly. And, and you know, and I have conversations all the time in Bristol. Lots of Bristolians think it's disgusting that we're owned by a PLC and that it should be owned by the people. And and I say, great, I you know, I love you for it, and it's it's terrific. But actually, it's not relevant to the whether the number eight will come up Park Street at eight o'clock tomorrow, and you'll be able to afford to get on it. Those things are going to be dealt with in a different place. So don't worry about the ownership thing. You know, you can have those discussions somewhere else. As far as I'm concerned, the key thing is those of us who are involved in delivering the service will have to um, deliver it in whatever structure the politicians give us to do it, and um, and we'll still do it, and we'll, and it'll be much the same. We've answered one of my questions, but not the other. We've answered the question as, what did James Freeman do to generate this extraordinary growth? The question I don't feel we've answered is, why is only James Freeman and a number of others doing this? Why, why are there so few places that are, are doing what you're doing? Because like you said, you've, 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 these are lessons that you've taken in part from elsewhere. And you, know, you gave the example of the 36. That's been doing what it's been doing for decades now. So why, why are these still isolated examples in your view? Because I think it's actually really hard work to do the thing properly and it's much easier not to. And, and you do need to have a very long-term view and you do need to be prepared to sit and, and, and pursue your goals relentlessly, endlessly, and while it doesn't happen. Uh, and um, the ownership structures these days particularly do not work for that at all. Um, uh, quick buck, do it now, sort it out, it's got to be finished. Here and now, there's no long-term view, it's not time for that. The, you know, the shareholders won't permit it, they just won't wait. Um, those sort of things mean that uh, you can't take the strategic view quite often. The other thing is that um, there isn't a lot of store set by it, and, and a lot of owners don't think it's important at all. And, and 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 therefore, what the, they don't see the connection between a successful business and the quality of what it's producing. They do in a way, but but don't actually, because the devil's in the detail. And 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 bus operation is very much about the on-the-ground detail and all these elements and how they interact with each other. So um, so the ones that get it right are the ones that have put a lot of time and energy and trouble into doing it and, and are prepared to go on doing that and be consistent over it. And uh, I think, you know, that's difficult. And um, it certainly doesn't meet the corporate world uh, aspirations. Unless by chance growth is so fantastic that you, you, you're generating so much money that they're, they're, they're happy to leave you alone. Let's imagine you were 20 again. Um, you were joining the bus industry all over. What would be exciting you most now, and what would be scaring you most now? Given that you, you would, of course, again have the ambition to be learning on the front line before taking the seat in the manager's office. 
Well, I mean, if you think back to 1978 or whatever it was when I was, you know, first doing this, I had no perception of what was going to happen. My God, a good thing I didn't know. Um, you know, we can't see ahead in that sense. And so um, you relate the, the, your ambition to what you can see in front of you at the time. And um, so, you know, I would still be thinking similar sorts of thoughts. I'd be thinking to myself, how do we leverage all the wonderful technology that's floating around? You know, how are we going to take advantage of uh, um, new fuels, autonomous vehicles, different types of payments, all those sorts of things. But the principle of, you know, how can we provide terrific service for people um, not much different, really. Uh, um, you know, I'd be wanting to do it. And I think I'd still be wanting to apply the same old things, which are it's the basics. I think that's, that's you know, those basics are still applicable now as before and will be whatever technologies and excitements are going on around us. The basics of the way we treat each other and the way we look at what we're doing, I, I've always felt that's the key to this. And I think um, it would still be. If I was 20, I'd be thinking the same thoughts. I've had the benefit now, but I've seen it happen. So I, I now I kind of know it works now, but I always thought it might. And I, one thing I'm curious about, you've run a lot of bus companies. Uh, we talked earlier about corporate and corporate perspectives. Um, have you never been tempted to you know, move up the chain, run one of these huge PLCs? Never, nobody's ever asked me, Thomas. Um, never at all. And, and actually, it doesn't, um, doesn't rock my boat, really. I like the fact that... Um, uh, you know, up till three weeks' time, anyway. Um, in Bristol, I'm I'm the busman. Um, I I know all the key people. They know me. Um, uh, uh, I have an actual grip on what's going on. I can control the way things are to quite an extent. I can have an influence over the way our business works. I think that people have, you know, who work in our business know what I'm thinking more or less, and they understand whether they're in line with it or not. They might not want to be in line. That's a whole different question. But um, you know, in principle, they, they they kind of they kind of get it. I've always thought that being a much more senior person, a much more strategic role, would probably be more headaches and less um, and less kind of the good side. I, I mean, you know, I the thing that keeps me going still is seeing it happening. You know, when we when we actually get something to work and it and it starts to deliver, it's tremendous kick, really. And I think if I was more senior, I wouldn't see all that. And I'd just sit in an office day in, day out, um, tinkering around with the numbers. Whereas actually, I, I still like, you know, the, uh, last night we had a, a, a virtual meet the manager session on Zoom and Facebook with our Bristol City drivers. And it's fantastic to be able to talk to them, you know, in real time. What do you think about this? Um, da, 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 you know, kicking things back and forth. That's that's what keeps me uh sort of wanting more if you like and and i think in a very strategic role i wouldn't be so good but no one's ever asked me and if you want to i'm available actually from the 31st of march <laughs> fantastic thank you we've full circle we've ended up right back where we started with the people and the drivers and talking to them so that's fantastic thank you so much for taking time this is taking i we've talked for far longer than i intended uh, but it was just fascinating and i didn't want to stop for a minute and i kind of don't want to now i think i could keep having this conversation for the rest of the day so that was really interesting well that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week 
Thank you very much to my guest, James Freeman, the Managing Director of Bath and Bristol, at least for the next three weeks. And thank you to you very much for listening. Next week, I'll be joined by Graham Cross, the Chief Executive of the Heathrow Southern Railway. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the Freewheeling podcast, do please drop onto the Apple Store and give us a quick rate and review. And I look forward very much to being with you again next week. Bye.